Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In the last few months of the year 1803, the Hammersmith District of London had a huge ghost problem. This particular ghost problem was different than the typical house haunting in that the ghost of Hammersmith haunted the entire neighborhood, most witnesses running into the ghost in the local churchyard and many in the nearby lanes and avenues. Because of his apparent attachment to the churchyard, many residents of Hammersmith believed the ghost was the lost soul of a local man who had committed suicide the year before, left unable to rest due to being buried on consecrated grounds as a victim of suicide. Multiple residents of Hammersmith encountered the ghost and lived to tell the tale, some claiming to have witnessed a large figure covered in a white shroud, while others claimed the ghost was wrapped in a white calfskin with large glass eyes. But some witnesses were less fortunate and were reported to have died shortly after meeting the ghost and recalling what happened to them, including two women, one elderly and one pregnant. One of the women reported crossing the churchyard around 10 p.m. one night where she watched a figure, very tall and very white, rise from the tombstones. She claimed she attempted to run from the figure before it enclosed her in its arms, pressing into her before she fainted. She was found a few hours later and taken to her own bed by her neighbors where she sadly died, seemingly killed by fright. Another, a man named Thomas Groom, reported to have been attacked while also crossing the churchyard one night, strangled from behind by some unseen force. And yet another man, a night watchman named William Gardler, claimed to have encountered the ghost one night and attempted to chase him down, watching as the figure threw off his white shroud and managed to get away completely unidentified. This naturally caused chaos for everyone in Hammersmith, and many of the frightened community members formed armed patrol groups who scoured the streets, attempting to find and capture the ghost. But somehow the ghost of Hammersmith seemed to know what area would be unguarded and when, leaving him free to play his tricks. On the night of Tuesday, January 3rd of 1804, 29-year-old excise officer Francis Smith came face-to-face with the ghost and in an act of justice shot down the white figure in the dead of night, determined to free Hammersmith from the ghost's reign of terror once and for all. What Smith didn't realize was that he didn't kill the ghost at all, but instead killed 32-year-old bricklayer Thomas Millwood. This resulted in a murder trial that would set a legal precedent in the UK involving self-defense that remained unsettled for almost 200 years. The murder case of the ghost of Hammersmith asks the question, can someone be held liable for their actions even if they were the consequence of a mistaken belief? Today on Occult Confessions, we're going to be unraveling the mystery behind the trial of Francis Smith and the infamous murder case of the ghost of Hammersmith. My name is Olivia Litterall, and today I'm joined by Hierophant, Supreme Hierophant, Rob Thompson. That's right. Hello. What's Nikki up? Nikki Henderson. Is this Nikki's Hello. first time discussing? Yes. Woo. Nikki's our neophyte. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> and Olivia's our grandmaster. You didn't yeah. say your title. <laughs> well, I'm not used to doing this, I guess. It's been a while since we flipped. You don't want to brag about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me say a couple words about Nikki because uh, Nikki's new to the show. Nikki uh, is, where are you from, Nikki? Canada, Canada, the whole t- whole country. She's from everywhere, all the provinces. She owns it all. <laughs> uh, so Nikki met us through uh, was it the art episode you did, Olivia, the interview episode? Yeah, pretty much the first time we really like talked. Yeah, first time we interacted with Nikki, really through social media, right? That's how we first. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. That was really like the first, probably. Nikki, how did you find us? Uh, so I actually, okay, I didn't understand podcasts. Like I thought you had to 
pay to have like the podcast thing on your phone because I'm a grandma with technology. So then I found out that you could just like listen to podcasts. And I was like, dang, I wonder if there's anything about like the occult. And I literally just typed in like occult and I found occult confessions. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds cool. And I was listening and like the voice acting element of it. I was like, okay, that's really cool. And then I just listened to like all of them. So it is not the case that our listeners can generally make the transition (laughs) (laughs) to the alchemical actors. I want to emphasize that being an alchemical actor may sound easy, but it is not in fact very easy. My alchemical actors are busy, busy people. They do multiple projects for us. They record on a very regular basis. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who come through our doors, right, Olivia, who are not quite suited to what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. We try them out and it doesn't work so well. In Nikki's case, she's a creative person. She's an actor. She's an artist. She's a, a voice person. She's a, oh, a cult stop. person. <laughs> and all around beautiful person, Nikki. Uh, so uh, she's just the kind of people who jives with us. And uh, so here's Nikki doing the show. But for the most part, this is not something that happens very often. Uh, so don't write me letters. But here's the other thing, listeners. <laughs> Uh, Nikki is also a sign of, you know, the kind of community that we build on the show. It, it isn't, it, it, Nikki is the only person who has gone from listener to alchemical actor. Congratulations, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, you know, we will tell your stories on the show. We will take your suggestions on topics to do. We will interview you if you are an expert in some particular field. Uh, we are legitimately a community show. So Nikki is also in some ways a sign uh, of, of how we, we like to interact with, with listeners. So welcome to the Alchemical Actors, Nikki. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. All right, Olivia, shall we do this thing? I guess we shall bring Nikki into the chaos. Tell me a story. (laughs) I will. But first, you must pledge. Okay. You're right. We, the members members of the the secret secret order order of alchemical actors actors to solemnly solemnly commit commit ourselves ourselves to a full and honest telling telling of the history history of the occult as far as we know it. it. You know what comes next, Olivia. I got to open it, though, because I'm you. (gasps) Oh, my God. I almost almost did it. Like, just on it immediately <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since you've run the show yeah please please open plug 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 is that what you think of anyway that's what i i was doing my own thing there all right and i actually have to do good. the plugs i will i will now i will handle the plugs <laughs> right that's why it, okay <laughs> it's a little weird okay so here's some things we want you to know about first of all Dark Pool is coming back. That's another reason why Nikki's hanging out with us today, because oh. Nikki is in the new Dark Pool season. Oh, yeah, she is. So this is Dark Pool 2, the darkening or the pooling. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, electric pool. Juggle. The, no, I was yeah. trying to think of the same joke. <laughs> the dark. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and it's exciting, and uh, we'll be telling you more about it as we go. But uh, as, if you're listening to this episode, I think we'll be days away. September 13th is the launch date for Dark Pool 2. So if you haven't gotten on Dark Pool 1, now's the time. Uh, another thing I want to let everybody know, uh, because we've been away for so long, this is we're finally back. This is, more, this is closer to real time. 
which is generally within a month of episodes posting, Discord is growing. Uh, the com- community on Discord is a wonderful place to hang out. If you don't like the rigmarole of Facebook and Instagram, I totally understand. Discord is a place where you can just connect with like-minded people. And, uh, you know, I've been joining the conversation. Olivia's been joining the conversation. It's just, try. it's great try people. Really yeah. Am I right, Olivia? The vibe is nice. You know, everybody's oh, yeah, really yeah, yeah, pleasant. Sure. There's no trolling. Everybody's really supportive. It's just a great place to talk about things that we care about. Lots of like resource like sharing and stuff too. So if you're like looking for that. Oh yeah. Books, art. You know, people yeah. promoting their own, you know, side yeah, stuff yeah, that yeah. they're doing, indie stuff. Very cool. Uh, and before we get into the patrons, I want to say YouTube is coming up, man. She's coming. It's a good day to do this because this is Olivia's episode and Olivia will be doing her own show on YouTube. Olivia fans out there. Mm. So uh, already uh, Dan and I have in production some uh, Rob-based activities, which are you know mostly... Uh, edits of, of the, the podcast stuff. So I'm doing top five lists and I'm doing uh, sort of like summaries of the big topics, but uh, Olivia's going to be doing brand new topics from her own standpoint. Uh, th- these are going to be YouTube sized, uh, 10 to 20 minute episodes. Uh, but but uh, Olivia, I'm not going to press you to tell us what you're doing yet, <laughs> but it's something to look forward to, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And if you guys have any, you know, pressing topics or anything that you think would be good for me to talk about, then please feel free to pass them along. I know a lot of people have told me very good topics, actually. A lot of people suggested some really cool shit, so. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Yeah. Uh, that's another way of, of, uh, warning you, I guess that Olivia is going to be busy this year. So if you're not always hearing her on the podcast, go over to YouTube, you will find her there. And that's going to be true of everybody. We're really spreading out. And part of the reason that we're able to do this is because of some of the people I'm about to name. Our Patreon yeah. is growing every, every month. Uh, and, and that needs to keep happening friends. We can't rest on our laurels. If you're listening to this, you haven't given yet, please consider we do uh, the dollar a month thing. We're not, you know, cheap or what, I don't know what the word is. We're not expensive. Um, you know, but if you have the means, we go all the way up to nine bucks a month and, and, uh, you know, it's just, you're getting bang for your buck here, patrons, because not only are we producing bonus content on Patreon, we're expanding into YouTube. Dark pool is coming back. We are doing, if, if it wasn't for our patrons, I would just be doing this. I, I might just be doing this. Maybe I would have quit this by now. So you're, you're getting an expanded occult confessions, a universe, right, Olivia? Yeah, for sure. Let's name those patrons. Uh, so let me caveat here. I don't, we have so many patrons because we've been gone for a couple of months that I'm only going to do half of our patrons today. And then our next episode, I'll do the other half. Cause I want to make sure that everybody gets a moment. Okay. So starting back from, uh, I guess June, probably we have Brad and Dr. Ray, Patrick W. PA2 or PA2, but a lowercase PA, Cheyenne H and Bill, Chris M, JHY, Juan B, Angel, and Axel. And we'll get to the rest of our patrons next time. Thank you all. And welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the fam. I mean, you were already part of the fam, but now you're like, like tiered, like you've got a title and shit. So <laughs> you know how every family has like the inner circle, <laughs> like the favorites. You're in no, the kitchen. Yeah. We invited you into the kitchen. <laughs> All right, should I close them up, Olivia? Or you have more to say? Um, I don't know. 
I guess I just, yeah, I've, people have making, been making me feel really warm and fuzzy about Patreon recently. I don't know what else to say about that except for that, but like you told me, I don't know, people are just saying really nice things and I don't know. Yeah. I appreciate it. I've been having really nice conversations with some of you guys recently and I just appreciate it. So. Plug, plug, plug. Oh, see that that was pretty reminiscent of me. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess we're doing this. Well, you are. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I um, I, I guess I'm going to start with a little bit of a a preface. Not a preface. I guess, kind of. Um, I I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. So, like, I I went back and forth a lot on exactly how I wanted to structure this episode. Um. I, I decided to kind of the best way to give the most fair, complete telling of the story was to walk through the night that Thomas Millwood was killed by following the testimonies given during the trial of Francis Smith. Um, so the order that I tell the testimonies isn't necessarily the order that they were actually given in the trial document, but I switched things around for the sake of better storytelling, essentially. Um, I also want to mention that because of the nature of the legal system and documentation at the time, we don't have a lot from Francis Smith himself. Um, just kind of what others have said about him and like reported his good character during his trial. Um, there's one, one bit that he has that we'll hear eventually. Um, there were also a lot of gossipy articles written about the case at the time, um, which is a lot of what my sources were. Um, and, Many of them do frame Smith as kind of more of like a drunken, hell-bent man, like a man hell-bent on becoming a town hero. Um, so I just want to keep that in mind as we go through his story, you know, interpreting different types of historical documents, blah, blah, blah. You all hopefully understand what I'm getting at. Um, so with that, let's dive into exactly what happened on the night of January 3rd, 1804. According to the testimony of Anne Millwood, Thomas Millwood's sister, Thomas visited his parents' his parents' house a few minutes past 10 p.m. while waiting for his wife to get off work at a nearby house so she wouldn't have to walk home by herself. And what'd she do for a living over there? I don't know. No, nothing said, but I'm assuming she was like a housekeeper or Sounds something. Sounds like it. Yeah, if she's it, next door. It was the Smith house. That's, that's all I know. So they had a little more cash. Yeah, so it was pretty close by was the insinuation. Okay. Um, his mother, father, and sister were all getting ready to go to bed, but Anne decided to stay up and talk to her brother while he waited for his wife to be like, get off work. Uh, Thomas was dressed in his normal standard work uniform, uh, white linen trousers and a white waistcoat and a white apron, super typical, like standard bricklayer. Sometimes he's referred to as a plasterer, but I, I guess they're kind of the same thing essentially but you use plaster to lay brick sure right <laughs> meanwhile according to william gardler's own testimony he met smith around 10 30 p.m while on patrol as a night watchman on the corner of beaver lane not far from an area where the ghost had been spotted before do we want any jokes about beaver lane or nikki this is all you what, just because I'm Canadian, you think I have beaver jokes? Wow. I was thinking more I, of it because mean, of your genitals, but sure. That's, that's kind of what I was going. I just didn't know if there's any innuendos anyone wanted to get out now. I think it's toxically masculine of me to, to make beaver jokes, but you could do it as a Canadian and a woman. Mm. 
I got nothing. All right, well, she's going to pass. There. We're going to let that beaver lay. <laughs> Smith told Girdler his plans to search for the ghost, and Girdler agreed to help him after he had cried the hour, which was standard of, of night watchmen at the time. Um, <laughs> Nikki's imagining a person weeping. <laughs> just standing on the street corner. It's so loud in Yes, very Maroon 5. That's That's basically, yeah. <laughs> Um, so both men basically came up with a code phrase so that they could safely approach each other um, in the dark lanes at night. Uh, one of them would start by saying, who comes there? The other would respond, friend, and then the other one would then reply, advance friend. Um, so it was like a, a three-step system of a code phrase. Anne claimed Thomas and her spoke for a long time until they both heard the watchman call the hour at 11 p.m., Anne told her brother he better hurry so his wife didn't walk home by herself, standing in her doorway as she watched her brother walk down Black Lion Lane. He bid my mother and me good night and went out of the door and shut it. As soon as he was gone, I jumped up and went to the door. As soon as I got to the door, I heard a voice say, Damn you! Who are you? And what are you? Damn you! I will shoot you! And whilst they were speaking, the gun went off and I saw the flash of the fire from the gun. I went from the door and called Thomas as loud as I could, three or four times, but nobody answered. Not hearing any response from her brother after the sound of the gunshot, Anne ran down the street to find Thomas. I ran out of the door, and when I had got halfway from my father's house to my brother's, I saw my brother laying dead at the gate. I took hold of his right hand and said, Speak to me. But he could not. He was quite dead. His head was laying towards me as I went up to him. Gardler claimed to have heard a gunshot go off not long after he had called out the hour at 11 p.m., but said he didn't think anything of it because he heard such frequent gunfire at night, which is essentially a direct quote. Um, and the court definitely questioned that, like, I'm, I'm sure... And Nikki's got questions about that, I think. Well, okay. No, because that sounds, that could be legit because there actually, someone got shot on my street corner and um, I passed, like, it was a whole thing. I passed, I came inside and I told my roommate, I was like, someone just got shot. And she was like, oh my God, that was a gunshot I heard. But like, we hear like uh, cars backfiring or like going over mm -hmm. potholes or something or gunfire. Like so often that like you don't really think anything about it. That's terrifying to think that someone could actually just be like uh, getting shot. Do you know what the murder rate is there in Winnipeg? It's not good, Rob. Say <laughs> Canada. I know for at least uh, like at one point there was like a a high. Rate, yeah, we're, right? we were the murder capital of like Canada. Picton wow. era. Well, it could be worse. She could be the murder capital of the U.S. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where we don't live nikki by the way no although we can drive to baltimore which is not the that safest is, place <laughs> that is true <laughs> anyhow this same gunshot um oh but i guess to touch on the gunshot thing i think hit girdler was basically suggesting that I, because pretty much everyone had a right to bear arms at this point that there was frequent gunfire of some sort in, cause I guess it's also near London. I'm not sure exactly, but I, I think he did mean like 
he was just used to hearing gunfire, but I, I don't, I really don't know. I don't know the exact rules on this, Olivia, but we are, you know, eight, what's it, 1803 or something? It's right turn of the century, right? Yeah, this is, you know, not Victorian era, but before. Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking about the Enlightenment, it was not uncommon for duels to be taking place. They weren't oh, always yeah, yeah, legal, yeah. but, you know, you got to figure people were shooting at each other constantly for whatever reason, for getting insulted. For sure. Minor and- disagreements. And I'm not sure I ever like name the gun that Smith used, but it was, it was a, a what is like a blunderbuss or whatever it's called. Essentially it's a shotgun. Oh, wow. Like, it's like a, it's a big like gun. He was not like playing around, which later people were kind of like, would you shoot a ghost with a gun like that? But, I mean, or at all the practicality yeah. of that's flawed but <laughs> well you know the, <laughs> maybe like a werewolf all... or a vampire or something people were still so like superstitious i think in a way that like this kind of ghost thing like it really did cause such a frenzy so i feel like people were still more willing to i guess i mean rob like you you know the history better of that than me but well like, i mean you, you see it in the movies too people shoot at ghosts it never goes well but mm-hmm. It's sort of like a human response. I mean, across time that you, you think you use what you got. The same gunshot that Girdler claims that he heard was also heard by a man named John Locke, who Ch- John is Locke? not the philosopher John Locke. <laughs> oh, wow. He was very dead. Oh, wow. I had to literally like, I was like, this John Locke is like a winemaker, but like, let me just... Let me do a Google search and make sure our man philosopher was dead. And he it's like his died fun nephew. in like the 1700s. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, this man, John Locke, he, he was also a witness during the trial. Um, Locke was approached by Smith, who told him just point blank that he had shot a man who he also believed to be the person pretending to be the ghost of Hammersmith. So I, I feel like the important thing there is just to note that I, I think Smith didn't think that he was shooting a real ghost. He, I think he was under the impression that he was going after someone who was pretending to be this, this menace, so to speak. But was actually guilty of doing horrible things, right? That was his belief. Yeah, like Scooby-Doo. Like the, the ghost. Sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So they, they figured yeah, it was people, a guy. Women were dying and like yeah. men are talking about being strangled and punching air. And uh, yeah, people were kind of like freaking out. When he basically asked, admitted, sorry, he basically yeah, admitted but, that he knew, well, he believed that it was a person. Like yeah. in that conversation, he basically is like, oh yeah, shot that person dressing up as a goat. And like, oh, so, so you knew. Okay. And that becomes, I think, even more evident um, when he does have his, like, one paragraph of a a defense statement um, that we will hear later. When asked what Smith said to Girdler when he approached, Girdler reported, he said he had hurt the man. I said, I hope you have not hurt him much. Says he, I have and I fear very bad. Girdler, Locke, and another man named George Stowe all went with Smith back to Black Lion Lane, where they assessed the situation, immediately realizing that Millwood was dead. Girdler carried Millwood's body to the Black Lion Inn, where it would be eventually examined by a surgeon named Dr. Flower, which I love as a name of a surgeon from that time period. I don't know what, but in my brain, he's 
he's incredible. It's because that's that's what he'll he'll put on your coffin when he inevitably butchers and kills you. Yeah, I it yeah, I, there's something like poetic about this man being a surgeon, but then also probably dissecting the anyway. Flowers' report stated that the bullet went in through Millwood's left lower jaw and penetrated his vertebrae, injuring the spinal marrow and causing pretty much instant death. With a verdict of willful willful murder, why is that so hard to say, at the hands of Francis Smith. Gardler noted that Smith fully cooperated with him and the constables before and during his arrest, even attesting to his good character. So, as I mentioned earlier... We don't have a whole lot from Smith himself. Uh, I just have this one line, essentially, besides what others have said in their testimony of him. Um, So this is, uh, you're about to hear basically the small section uh, under the prisoner's defense. My lord, I went out with a good intention, and when this unhappy affair took place, I did not know what I did. Speaking to the deceased twice and he was not answering, I was so much agitated... I did not know what I did. I solemnly declare my innocence and that I had no intention to take away the life of the unfortunate deceased or any other man, whatever. Anything to say about that? What gets me is that, like, what I don't understand is that, um, like, he did call out to the guy. And, like, why didn't he say, like, oh, not a ghost, don't shoot me the man dressed in all white looking like a ghost where you see the ghost man out hunting for a ghost like i don't know that's what gets me i've heard the story before and then every time i'm just like what did he like because his sister heard him so how did how did he not hear him like oh my god he has airpods in no because it's like what 1803 so the sister actually does like basically in her testimony she she does make a point of saying that because the man like she heard smith's smith speaking essentially and then saw the gunfire like flash go, the flash of the gun go off heard it and said that that happened like as suit like as right after the man spoke she basically insinuates that like thomas had zero time to be like yo don't shoot it's it's not like it's not i'm not the ghost i will also say though that even uh, we're going to hear something in a minute about (laughs) Millwood that might also kind of, that the defense kind of uses against him. That kind of, I think relates to it a little bit, but, and does say like, she does make a point of being like, he had no time to do anything. Oh, so it was more like who goes there? Boom. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) So the defense did have two like pretty decent witnesses. Uh, one was a man named Thomas Groom, um, who is who the man that I actually mentioned at the beginning of the episode, who had his whole experience with the ghost of Hammersmith. And then a woman named Mrs. Fulbrook, who also happened to be Thomas Millwood's mother-in-law. So that's kind of fun and spicy that the defense has his mother-in-law actually, uh, you know, speaking for Smith. Fulbrook lived with Millwood and his wife, and during the trial, she recalled a discussion that she had with him the Saturday before the incident regarding his uniform and rumors of the ghost. 
On Saturday evening, he and I were at home, for he lived with me, and he said that he'd frightened two ladies and a gentleman who were coming along the terrace in a carriage. For that the man said, he dared to say, there goes the ghost. To that he said he was no more of a ghost than he was, and asked him, using a bad word, did he not want a punch of the head? I begged of him to change his dress. Thomas, says I, as there is a piece of work about the ghost, and your clothes look white, pray, do you not put on your greatcoat that you may not run into any danger? I don't know what answer he made. He said that he wished the ghost was catched or something of that sort. Oh my god. So what are they gonna do? Shoot me? Basically, like, that's essentially the stance he was taking was like, ha ha ha, everyone knows the bricklayer's uniform. I'm safe in the night. Um, no one is safe in the night. No, no, no. He didn't. He didn't know. Um, Thomas Groom's testimony recalled his encounter with the figure in the churchyard, claiming. I was going through the churchyard between eight and nine o'clock with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket when some person came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard behind me, and caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant, who was going on before, hearing me scuffle, asked, what was the matter? Then, whatever it was gave me a twist round and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist and felt something soft, like a great coat. So, honestly, considering the time period and the case, I feel like the defense really tried their best to do something here. No matter what Groom actually experienced, ghost or not, his testimony is a representation of the fear most of Hammersmith's population was experiencing at the time. And I think the intention here was maybe to like make Smith seem like less irrational for what he did or or like more like he had a grounds for self-defense um but when you combine a neighborhood in which everyone is paranoid about a ghost attacking with millwood's own mother-in-law's statement about there being previous incidents where millwood was confused with the ghost of hammersmith but didn't seem to care you have a defense that's kind of trying considering it's 1804 and there's no precedent yet for any of this ghost shit going on well, yeah, there's no insanity or, you know, any, any of that as an option that won't be around for like 50 years, well, 60 years. And in fact, they they wouldn't have even considered that in this case, because I, as uh, you're going to hear in a minute, they the the judge basically limited what could, like what the verdict could be for Smith because of essentially intent, which I'll get into now oh sorry go ahead um it almost sounds like because the bricklayer was like haha yeah i look like a ghost that almost seems like maybe he's a little bit suspicious of like scaring people and finding it funny like if he Mm -hmm. thought it was kind of funny that people kept thinking he was a ghost and he didn't want to like change that that doesn't really look good for him you know being the or one of the ghosts that's haunting the place sure it's a little guilty speaking of ghosts before i continue with the outcome of smith's trial 
I've been kind of holding out on a fact of the trial that does somewhat impact the outcome. Some of you might have been wondering for the last however many pages I've been talking, Olivia, is there a ghost? Is this episode even about ghosts? When is Rob writing episodes about ghosts again? Do you guys, uh, what do you think? Is, Is there a ghost? Is there never been a ghost? Nikki seems to think that that Millwood, Thomas Millwood might secretly be the ghost. I don't doubt that like someone could have seen an actual ghost, but I also don't doubt that someone was bored and had an all white uniform and was like, boo, bitch, just for fun. It's uncommon for a poltergeist to murder anybody, strangle anybody or anything like that. Although poltergeists I consider to be not uncommon in human experience. So I guess uh, I'm on the fence. Well, there was a ghost, but he wasn't a real ghost. Aww. Two days after the shooting happened, an elderly shoemaker in the community named John Graham came forward as the infamous (laughs) ghost of Hammersmith. (laughs) Evidently, he claimed he started dressing up like a ghost using a white sheet to freak out his apprentices who had terrorized his children with ghost stories. I know that this sounds like kind of ridiculous to us now, like a man putting on a white sheet like to scare people as a ghost. But back when people couldn't be buried in a casket, um, they would often be buried in a white sheet. So a man wearing a white sheet in a dark alleyway is actually some like really scary shit back then. Is that so, where that comes from? It's a shroud, yeah, basically. basically. It's a, it's oh a stand-in for a shroud. I mean, when my kid which, was a ghost for Halloween and she basically was wearing a shroud and white face paint. Right, which is why earlier he was literally described as, like the ghost was described as wearing a white shroud. Like, yeah, yeah, that's all so it Graham, is. Yeah, so he actually did turn himself in. Um, but they didn't really know what to do with him legally. Like if they didn't know what to do with Smith, like I'm about to like get into like the real complications of like what to do with Smith, but they like definitely didn't know what to do with Graham basically. Cause they don't know what to do with him legally. There's no record of any kind of punishment ever actually happening to him. He basically was just let out on bail is essentially like what the text says. So just don't do it again. Okay. Impersonating a dead person. Can we just talk about how this elderly shoemaker was somehow like nimbly, like outrunning the watchmen and like (laughs) all of these armed patrols? Like he memorized the streets and was just like running the fuck, like, like what? (laughs) He's the most agile, like elderly. Like I don't know how old he was, but they made him sound like. Like, like to imagine that he old. came out, yeah, that he came out like really old and was like, "I'm the ghost, but I'm not dead yet. I'm just really old." He's got yeah, good like, shoes. I wonder why I he's so quick. Oh, that is yeah. True. He's got You're the best right. shoes in town, so he's they're they're both quiet and uh, comfortable and allow him to go in and out of windows. Maybe he's buff. Makes you wonder what the kids thought. You know, like what his children thought. Words <laughs> were they like? You're so cool, Dad. Or was it like, Dad, you're embarrassing. You embarrassed me for the whole town. I'm sure it's Did the same. You second have one. to come forward and tell them it was you, Dad. Like, come on. Right. Like, I'm going to be the ghost's kids now. Oh, <laughs> man. So, Smith had initially entered the trial with a plea of not guilty, even though he admitted to firing the shot that killed Millwood, which is basically what he said in uh, his 
you know, the prisoner's defense statement is that he was pleading not guilty. However, the chief judge of the trial, known as the Lord Chief Baron, claimed that the only verdicts optional in Smith's case were either murder or a total acquittal from want of evidence. He explained that murder was an intent to kill that required malice, but didn't require you to know the person that you're killing. So the example that he basically gives for this is that you can shoot a gun into a room of strangers intend, like intending to kill one person, and you might just kill one person, or you might accidentally kill someone else, but either way, you still had malice. Malice was involved, and this is just the same as it was in Smith's case. The Lord Chief Baron also pointed out that Smith wasn't acting in self-defense, but also didn't shoot Millwood by accident, plus Millwood wasn't even committing any kind of offense to begin with. And even if Smith had shot John Graham himself, fully convinced he was a ghost, he still wouldn't have had any grounds to shoot and kill Graham, who was at best committing a misdemeanor punishable by a small fine. The jury eventually returned with a verdict of guilty of manslaughter, which the chief judge refused to accept because you can do that. The Lord Chief Baron declared that if the jury believed the evidence presented were facts, murder was the only reasonable verdict due to Smith's intent. Even when it comes to civil processes at the time, an officer of justice, you know, law enforcement, only had the right to use a deadly weapon to apprehend a suspect. If they killed said, like, said suspect using a deadly weapon, it was considered murder, which is an oh. insane concept, hmm. isn't it, America? Wow. I don't know if it's still like that in England, by the way, but that's how it was back then. So they used that even to say like, even as an excise officer, which is like basically like you're there to enforce taxes is like what I gathered from what an excise officer is. I don't know if Rob, you know more about that, but- About excise officers? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've ever come across, I never had seen that before. And I looked it up and I think it basically was saying like, it had to do with like taxes, like enforcing taxes. Okay, so tax collector. But like you're an officer, so I... Well, you are an officer of the state. I mean, we wouldn't want tax collectors to be... I mean, this is throughout history. Tax collectors are protected sort of like postal service workers are protected. If mm -hmm. you kill a postal service worker or it's a federal crime, tax collectors are the same thing because you don't want to see that bastard when he comes to your door. So people were often mad. Um, so you had to give him a little extra legal status. Hmm. The jury reconsidered and came back with a verdict of guilty of murder. Because I guess when you either have murder or you just completely get off altogether, you, they, you go with murder. Well, the Brits continue to be anti-gun, pretty anti, I mean, especially compared to us, but you know they don't have guns nearly to the degree that we do in the US. Mm -hmm. Francis Smith was sentenced to hang and his body to be dissected for science, hopefully by Mr. Flower. The Lord Chief Baron, however, knew everyone was obsessed with the case. Like it was, it was a hot case and a lot of people were like super in defense of Smith. So he basically referred his case to the crown and his majesty himself. I, it was a George guys. I don't know which one leave me alone. It doesn't matter. I don't think he did that much because I don't know which one it was. Smith was, uh, might have been oh, George the Third still. I think it might have been the second, but I'm not sure. It's no, no, no. It's definitely not the second. Victoria. Well, George the Third was no. the king during the American Revolution. Um, 
I don't know if we Tori could. We better cramped in a fourth. something. Yeah, that's correct. She's a bit later in the 19th century. So maybe George the Fourth. Uh, it's yeah, but George the Third would have been 1776. It's George the Fourth. That is the fourth of the Georges. He reigned until 1830. Nice. He gets this win, I guess. Smith was not left dreading the noose for long because by 7 p.m. the same day, his sentence was changed by his majesty to one year's imprisonment with hard labor. In July, I think like July 14th, Smith was given a full pardon. It sounds like it's a very early case of popularity causing someone to get a lighter sentence. Oh, that was the that was like the shit back then. Well, I feel like in a lot of you look at a lot of justice like systems within that time period, like even in Hungary at the same time, it's like, it's like a whole, they're still kind of on some like in- inquisitor shit. Like it's like a whole different like kind of thing, you know? And even now I feel like there's definitely still prejudice with what, you know, celebrities, what minor crimes they could commit and get away with. And it's just crazy. Or major ones, sometimes major ones. Yeah. I was about to say, (laughs) be thrown out. I feel like even something like YouTube is just like a trash fire where there's all these people who should be criminally charged with multiple things who are somehow getting away with not getting charged with anything because they have a platform. But that's a, you know... (laughs) <laughs> that's a tangent and the now US- there's not even ghosts anymore come on used to be cool the u.s oj simpson certainly comes to mind but oh my god don't even get me started on oj simpson <laughs> I, I have gone down such a rabbit hole with that case i'm talking days of research anyway continue. my grandmother watched the whole thing in the 90s she watched the entire thing on oh TV. i would have she didn't miss a minute of it i mean that was a long affair but i mean the racial component of that complicates Mm-hmm. saying that just his celebrity was the reason that, that the jury made its decision. It was a very complicated trial, but anyway. So while this ghost story did have a somewhat happy ending, the legal aftermath is a huge part of like what first intrigued me about the case to begin with. It exposed a total lack of legal defense when it comes to cases where an individual thinks they're acting in good faith and use violence when they thought necessary, even though they completely misread a situation. The idea of whether or not to act on a mistaken belief continued to be a legal issue until it was finally settled at the Court of Appeal in 1984, which is like 180-something years later, with the case of R.V. Williams Gladstone. Essentially, during this case, a man named Gladstone Williams had witnessed one man dragging another younger man violently down the street while the latter called for help. Williams thought an assault was taking place and attacked who he thought was the assailant, but was actually attempting to detain the younger man who was the real offender. I think he was like a thief who was like stealing from the the guy's store or something. Williams was convicted of England's version of aggravated assault because it was like way longer and way weird. It was like something, I can't remember even what it was, but it was very strange. I don't know if it's still worded that way, but weird. Oh, you mean the crime, the name of the crime is not aggravated assault. It's something extensive. Yeah. It's like way longer. It's like six words. It's like a whole thing, (laughs) but essentially it's like 
U.S.'s version of aggravated assault. Handily molested with sundry objects. Kind of is like <laughs> what it is. It's like really bizarre. But but basically, he was convicted of aggravated assault uh, before the appeal was allowed. And then later, they removed his conviction. The appeal established that a mistake of fact can be used successfully as a defense, regardless of how reasonable or not the belief is, and was ultimately written into law in the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act of 2008, Section 76. So that's that. <laughs> a mistake of fact. This is making me think, I mean, I hate to get back to racial politics in the U.S., but it makes me think of the stand your ground laws. I mean, isn't that essentially a person who... The Trayvon Martin case, mm-hmm. this is a person who believed, mm-hmm. because I think of prejudice, but sundry other things, that you know Trayvon Martin was a threat, so he could make this defense, right? And that's, that is really interesting. And I wonder, like, because this is, this is England, so I wonder for us, and I didn't even think about looking this up, which now I'm, I'm definitely need to, but I wonder for America, like in the U S is, do we have a similar law or is it? Well, stand your ground is state by state. I mean, I don't think we have a stand your ground in Maryland, but certainly they do in Florida. And it's generally considered to be a racist law because it's often used against minorities. I guess that's why I'm like, is there something, is there like something that's actually like, you know, like, I don't know. So this would be a mistake of fact. If you accidentally think a person is a murderer or out to murder you, that that's a justification. The like murder trial of Francis Smith and like the ghost of Hammersmith is something that like was referenced like throughout that like 180, 200 years on any of the like cases of self-defense that were anything like it. Like it was used as a reference because it's like a precedent, but it was like an unsettled kind of precedent. So it wasn't until I think like something super specific that was pretty much the same just without, you know, the ghost thing. I think it took that happening to kind of be like, oh, okay, like, let me do that. But It really speaks to the time, you know, the, that 19, 1800, I guess, that mm-hmm. a ghost, you know, like you're saying, a ghost today, we would not say, ah, yes, you thought it was a ghost. Uh, how, how very reasonable. But in 1800, yeah. we would say, yes, of, of course, you, there's a, possibly a ghost. Who knows? I almost like, oh, sorry, Nikki. It's post-Newton. I, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's considered age of reason. The, the 19th century, mm-hmm. but the, you know, ghost belief persists, ghost belief persists right now. I would not be surprised if an incident like this could conceivably happen in the 21st century. If enough people in a, you know, one area have similar beliefs and one person experiences something and, and, you know, it can, it can have an effect to grow. So it, of course they believed it was a ghost and like if there was a man in a sheet standing and then one person saw him and told that person they saw him, the place is haunted, you know? Nikki, that puts me in mind of a thing my wife was telling me the other day, and I don't want to get into the details of this because it's such a, a sad story, but there's a man who killed his children. Did you come across this, Olivia, because he believed that his wife was a serpent person and that the children were serpent people? Oh. Which, is it the... the Drove to Mexico? He's a California guy. Drove to Mexico. Very recently, like the last few days. Oh, well, you have to look that up. Um, But but essentially, we're talking about a 21st century version of the ghost. 
the serpent, you know, the reptilian or whatever. Um, QAnon, you know, any of these belief systems, you know, like you're saying, Nikki, a group of people are reinforcing a belief system. They're no more or less valid than the notion of a ghost. Of course, on this podcast, 100 episodes deep, I'd say a ghost is more reasonable than most of what you'll catch on <laughs> yeah. 8-coon. But, you know, what can I you mean, do? the concept of ghosts has been around as long as we've been dying. So... Right. <laughs> you better believe that not a single bricklayer in the London area was wearing all white after that. <laughs> That's when they never switched the hear uniform. This happening again, or at least not such a big case. But <laughs> before they leave the house, they're like, "Okay, kids, paint splatter me." <laughs> so, Nikki, did you say that you had heard of this before? Because I like genuinely—I forgot I wanted to say this in the beginning, but like, especially to our people that live in like the UK, I want to know how like well-known this is as a thing because like i hadn't heard of it until last year buzzfeed unsolved actually did a video on it and that's like when i learned about it it's so, like, not you know, have you heard that of popular this? i have but that's because i'm kind of a super i'm into i'm into ghosts yeah. um and also true crime mm -hmm. so by looking up both of those things like at came once across. i came across <laughs> that cross, cross searched yeah so you're a bit, <laughs> bit down the rabbit hole yes and um yeah i, I just thought it was so crazy that that they're like there's a ghost in this town everybody grab your shotguns we're gonna get this bastard <laughs> yeah i mean especially the the like blunderbuss like we we could have left that one at home probably you know oh my god the names in this are insane you have the the dr flower or whatever <laughs> and the blunderbuss and the 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 there's just so many names that make it sound like a cartoon a part of me thinks you know like revenants and succubi and incubi i mean there was always a physical component to these supernatural beings they would inhabit bodies or they would reanimate or come back to life and then you know a weapon would make sense to kill the corpse <laughs> as odd well, as yeah, it sounds because they described like the people knew like they described the ghost like people who believed in the ghost would describe it as like appearing in flesh and blood because there were so many people that said they had physical experiences with it even girdler who was like oh yes like he threw off the shroud and like he saw this like figure run away but they still were like but it's a ghost which i think is like this interesting like distinction that they were willing to be like, ah, oh, yes, a ghost can be flesh and blood. But I think like now what we consider a ghost is like, you know, like this see-through apparition that just like dissipates if you walk through it, <laughs> you know, it's just like one with the air. <laughs> like, I feel like it's like a very different. So like, I wonder if that also like. Well, you said that someone saw like the description of him was like him like rising from a grave yeah like so that's like an early form of zombies like they're like the dead rising yeah. and in that well, case okay maybe yeah. shoot him and for sure because of the you know him being in the white shroud and and it being like it is kind of like a zombie you know it's someone like a ghost like someone coming back to life but then it, it also like i feel like i kind of glossed over the fact that you know, the poor guy that the year before had committed suicide that got like wrapped into being this ghost just because of this idea of like, oh, like he was buried in the churchyard, but he shouldn't have been because he was a suicide, which then I don't know why they still buried him in the church, like the churchyard. They 
yeah, if nothing that's the ever problem said with that. It. No one never, they just, all the sources say that they all blamed this one man, unfortunately had like slit his throat the year before and that he was buried in the churchyard and that they thought that's why his soul was unable to rest is because of, you know, you can't, people who kill themselves aren't supposed to be buried on, you know, Catholic grounds, but. Some people still think like that and it's really messed up. It is, it is super messed up. But I I do feel kind of bad that the the poor man kind of, he did get yeah. roped into being, people thought this man was the ghost. Obviously had a hard enough life anyway. And then tries to, you know, yeah. in death, they're like, hey, blame that guy. Yeah. So Hammersmith, um, if you're still a, an area, a town, I, I feel like we, you owe a formal apology to this poor unnamed man. Give him a monument or something. Yeah. Just give him, give him a street. Well, I don't know what his name is though. They, no one ever said his name. For as infamous as apparently he was, or not infamous, but, you know, people knew about him. I, I don't know. It was probably something ridiculous and cartoon sounding, like. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to fit the town of Hammersmith. <laughs> Open up that order of confessors, Rob. Yeah. Open that bitch up. We're going to gong on in. We got some, so many reviews to talk about here. Now, here's the thing, friends. Pod Chaser. Pod Chaser. Am I right? Pod Chaser. This is a new thing. This is the IMDB of podcasts. So it is a way to know like about podcasts that you like and to get to know other podcasts and like you can know what podcasts we guest on and it's like IMDB, like, oh, that guy, what movies is he in? So uh, we do have folks, we're, we're taking over Podchaser, <laughs> call confessions. We got folks on there reviewing the show. That's what I love about it most because we have so many folks listening on Spotify uh, but there's no outlet to review. If you're loving the show, come on over to Podchaser. You got to create an account, but I think it's well worth it. You can see the shows that I like. You can see the shows that everybody on the show likes, uh, and, and you can give us some love. So let me give some love to the folks who are giving us some love. What? Namely, Half and Half, Gabe the Butcher, Greg Daniels, Suzanne Spencer, Miranda, Tony Arto, Paula Ruder, and Brian. A lot of these folks are longtime friends of the show who have contributed and, and sent stories and all sorts of good stuff, but they never had a chance to write a review because they don't listen on iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, we want to thank Gaglian girl who loves Savannah. And that's delightful. Gaglian girl, Gaglian. I, say, I like the name. It's fun. Mad chemist 80 loves everybody and appreciates the humor and the hard work. Thanks to both of you. Uh, iTunes remains the gold standard. The thing about an iTunes review is that it doesn't just stick on iTunes. There are a lot of other platforms that aggregate iTunes reviews. It's really important to us to get those iTunes reviews up there. So if you're listening on iTunes, just, you don't even have to write anything. You just fade us some stars. Uh, it, It does help, um, and just building an audience for the show, which we are constantly, constantly doing. And uh, that's what we're here for. Love it. A plus black heart, black heart, black heart. If you don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was also just saying that to everyone. Oh, to you all. Yes. Also. Yes. Please join the army that just comments that. Cause that used to be an old thing that I enjoy. We love that. We still enjoy a plus. (laughs) A plus love (laughs) Love it. it. Yeah. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such time as we get together and do it again. For voices today, we've got Brandon Walls, we have Luke Kinnaman, 
got Lucy Bond and Aubrey Radford. I do encourage you guys to uh, look at some of these, even the gossipy ones. Uh, we've got the uh, Proceedings at the Old Bailey, London Central Criminal Court. Um, that was the main trial resource. The Hammersmith, the Hammersmith Ghost and the Strange Death of Thomas Millwood, written by Martin Bagoli for CrimeMagazine.com in 2015. The Newgate Calendar's ex-classics website. Um, the article in particular is Francis Smith condemned to death on the 13th of January, 1804, for the murder of the supposed Hammersmith ghost, but pardoned soon afterwards. And then Kirby's Wonderful and Scientific Museum or Magazine of Remarkable Characters, Volume 2, by R.S. Kirby in 1804, article about the Hammersmith ghost. Uh, today, joining me, I've got the Supreme Hierophant, Rob Thompson. See ya. And then we've got our neophyte here, Nikki Henderson. Goodbye. And then me, your Grandmaster, Olivia Literal. And we will see you next time on Occult Confessions. So this is the end of our series on the fictional occult, or I guess fictionalism and its intersection with occultism, people making things up. When we come back, it's time to get sexy. It's sexy time. Sex time. Sex. So uh, by that, I do not mean that we're going to talk about sex magic. Though That's the one caveat to the next series. We are going to talk about everything about the intersection between occultism and sex, except sex magic. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to talk about priestly celibacy and whether or not Casanova was an occultist. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have a good time. It's going to be a very fun series. I'm very much looking forward to it. Here on a call confessions.